like to uh, say a few words about a sutta that features the Buddha having a conversation with Rahula. And it's a sutta that I had read many, many times over the years and thought I understood it. And thought I understood it without giving it a lot of consideration. I sort of read it and I said, oh, I get that. I know what it means and I know that it, what it wants me to do. And <coughs> off to the next sutta. And uh, five or six months ago, I, I came across it again and uh, decided to look at it a little bit more closely, but, but more so to to really reflect on it a little bit and to consider if I had missed anything or not. And of course, you know where this is sto- where the story is going. I missed a lot, and I didn't really get it. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the things I learned as I was really looking at the sutra is that uh, there's a simplicity to it, um, and the uh, profundity and depth was lost on me. Uh, in its simplicity and also because it was asking or encouraging uh, me, us to do something that I hadn't done fully enough in my own practice and in my own life and so of course when I read the sutta as an invitation uh, to approach my life and my practice differently or with a different eye or with a different intention uh, I started to understand the the power or potential of the sutta, of the teachings contained within the sutta I think this is how uh, we're supposed to work with the suttas we read them and we hear them and we have some grasp of them probably And yet, they're asking us to experiment in our life. They're asking us to experiment in some way, to to do things differently, and to pay attention to the outcome of doing things differently. And this sutta is asking us to pay attention to everything, Uh, and to develop a reflective capacity to, uh, in my my words, to really develop a contemplative life, one that looks closely at experience and one that looks closely at action uh, to understand what the Buddhist tradition would call the true nature of our own mind so that we understand how suffering is caused so that we understand how suffering is alleviated. So that we can be happy, so that we can be uh, at ease, so that we can uh, be less caught up in 
degrading ourselves in, in, the, in the many different ways that, <coughs> that we do that or, or degrade others in the many ways that we do that. In this sutta, uh, the Buddha poses a question to Rahula and he says simply, do you know, Rahula, what a mirror is for? And uh, Rahula says, yeah, a mirror is for reflection. And uh, the Buddha is satisfied with his answer. And as he often does, uh, however, uh, he sees, uh, or rather he, he asked a question that was meant really as a segue. And so uh, he wants to elaborate, which he does. <clears throat> and I'll read you a, a couple passages from the, from the Pali Canon. The Buddha says, in the same way, in the same way that a mirror is for reflection, in the same way, Rahula, bodily action, verbal action, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. I want to point out the translation. I don't have the Pali in front of me, but I point out the translation um, reflection. There is a cognitive component to developing uh, insight practice, to developing, uh, to, to planting the seeds for the experience of insight itself. And I pointed to this a little bit in the meditation instruction, the possibility of looking at the experience or how, and or how we're relating to the experience and just checking in, like, is what I'm doing skillful? Is it creating harmony or balance? Am I feeling the simplicity that is being alluded to? Or am I having more of a chaotic, or busy experience in my mind? Is it, uh, is it easeful or is it painful? Right. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Now in formal meditation practice, we, 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 we learn to do uh, something that we call investigation, which doesn't have an embedded kind of thinking. Uh, in, in our daily life, we might actually just sit down and ponder, like, how did that conversation go? Like, how did that meeting go? You know, I went in with this intention, and there was this outcome. There. Do I want to do it differently next time, or do I want to do it mostly the same, right? So the, the, the Buddha's uh, straightforward advice in this sutta encourages a thoughtfulness, if you will, a deliberateness that makes up um, a contemplative life. And, and, and by that I mean a way of being in the world where our introspection merges with an analysis of action and outcome. So we're doing that all the time. 
Let me share a little bit more from the sutra, and then we, we can unpack this a little bit and try to talk about how it pertains more explicitly to meditation practice and to our daily life. The Buddha says, whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction? To the affliction of others or to both? (coughs) Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. So in a sense, this sums up the whole of uh, the Buddhist path or Buddhist training. Training is a can be an edgy or controversial uh, word. Training in other social contexts can be heavy-handed or uh, have all kinds of obligatory uh, methods that uh, we might have an adverse relationship for for various reasons. Um, I like the word training um, because it implies... Uh, some consistency and effort. Um, And this uh, possibility that is written into the scriptures will require, uh, whether we use the word training or not, uh, a lot of care and consideration and some time and effort. And um, and we really are truly training the mind, in a sense. Someone who's uh, here with us tonight uh, just sat an intensive silent six weeks, right? That's a very distinct classical uh, form of contemplative training. A lot of effort, a lot of courage, a lot of, uh, lot of difficulty met to the best of one's ability with uh, this kind of discernment. What is happening? Why am I suffering? You know? So the, the, the whole path is this, this question of what is skillful and, and what is not skillful? What is skillful and what is not skillful? In the Dhammapada uh, attributed to the Buddha, it is written as a, as a charge, abstain from all unwholesome deeds, perform wholesome ones. Purify your mind. I can picture the Buddha going like this. <laughs> this is the teaching of the Buddha. Abstain from all unwholesome deeds. Perform wholesome ones. Purify your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So simple and yet so hard to do. I mean, we're all still we're all still trying to do this, and it makes it sound so easy. You know. Abstain from all unwholesome deeds. You know. 
So what the Buddha's instructions are, are pointing out is that actions either cause afflictive um, states or experiences, um, those are unskillful actions, or uh, actions cause well-being. Well, those are skillful actions. And so, of course, these, con- these, these actions have consequences both for ourselves or others, and often for ourselves and others, right? So, in this short paragraph that I read, the Buddha said, pay attention to or reflect on what you want to do in bodily action. Right? So before you do a bodily action, to the best of your ability, just check in with yourself. Is this going to lead to well-being or is it going to lead to harm for myself or others? And as the sutta continues, and it's, instead of reading it all, I'll, I'll sort of just give you an overview of what, what he does. He says, when you're doing an action with your body, check and see, sort of in process, uh, is this skillful? Where is this leading? What, is, what, what, what might the end result be? You know, am I getting feedback from other parts of the body? Am I getting feedback from the way some other person looks? Um, what is the outcome? And after you do an action with the body, that's sort of the third step, uh, reflect on it a little bit. How did, how did it go? As, how, how did it go? So in relationship to body, there's before, during, and after reflection, okay? And then the Buddha moves on to advocate for the same model applied to speech and thought, giving us a map for the three ways that we interface with the world and with each other. This is how we make contact with one another. This is how we shape the world and the culture and the community and the town and the school and the cafe that we're sitting in. We interface with the world through body, speech, and mind. Body refers to any and all actions, you know, walking across the street is a, as a bodily action. Um, Pulling someone away from another person who's causing physical violence is an action. Uh, relating to another human being sexually, uh, even just even just uh, alluding to or being uh, in someone's physical orbit or space is a bodily action. Body, speech, and my speech is uh, those things, obviously, that we say. A great way of uh, caring for people and a great way of uh, empowering people and a great way or an easy way of uh, shaming people or, um, or hurting them in, in any variety of different ways. We can, we can, we can point out 
the gifts and talents, everyone has them. We can point out the things that they're doing wrong, everyone does them. Uh, when and where do we do both? Speech also refers to the things we, uh, it can, we can consider it as also being the things we say to ourselves. The ways we judge ourselves or criticize ourselves or, or prop ourselves up in a way that's a distraction from feeling uh, the implications of something done unskillfully. So we kind of lie to ourselves and we say, no, no, you're, you did everything right. It was their fault or something like that. <clears throat> So these are habits that we learn, and we, uh, we, we try to break them, essentially. Right? We try to break them. And excuse me, mind. Um, mind is all the, the, the container of thought and, and emotion and, and how we relate to that. So even though I might not know what everybody is thinking about me, in the, who's sitting in the front row. Um, everyone is having, uh, there's, 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 a, there's a relationship right now. Uh, and there's, there's thoughts, and there's ideas, and there's moods, and there's emotions. Uh, and so you are having the uh, exp- you are having a experience, um, pleasant or unpleasant, and you have some relative con- relative control. <coughs> over that. So the, the Buddha in this sutta is explaining uh, the importance of applying this formula. Um, so it's like a pre-contemplation, a during-contemplation, and a post-contemplation or post-reflection with body, speech, and mind. So he's talking about the importance of applying this um, as a formula in, in, in a sense. <coughs> Uh, becoming aware over time, becoming more aware of the relationship between action and outcome. Of course, to present moment activi- activities as a form of following activities that have been completed, using reflection to assess the likelihood that a similar action in the future will have a pleasant or unpleasant outcome. Similarly, uh, Many of you know um, from your own reading, and because I often will cite it, that the Dhammapada opens with a stanza that basically says, we create the world through mind. Our perception is like a pair of glasses. We can be looking at uh, the same thing, and we can, you know, if there's 20 people in the room, uh, we have a different experience. We see something slightly different. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, 
speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. So what we think and what we say and what we do is going to have an outcome, always. Uh, and we talk about not having very much control in, in our life, in a sense, we have limited control over our experience of life. And when we sit down and meditate, we see that pretty quick, don't we? Somebody said, uh, this Thursday on Tuesday, somebody said to me, uh, I was on Skype, and a student with a fair amount of experience, and he was reporting on his, home, on his meditation practice at home, and he said, man, I just don't really have much control over what happens in my mind. Specifically, he said, I really don't have much control over what thoughts enter my mind. Mm-hmm. And we all know that experience of, or of starting to see that in our, uh, or, or, or many of us have that experience, uh, recall that experience in our own practice sometimes. And, and, and the way he said it, I could tell that he, he, like, he was really... He was really seeing it. He was really seeing the limited control he had over what came into his mind um, when he meditated. And while as a basic principle that's true, this teaching and this formula are trying to give us an edge on a fairly uncontrollable world by choosing to be in direct relationship with our intentions and reflecting on the outcome of those intentions moment after moment after moment after moment after moment. So my experience of hearing these teachings is it sounds, it sounds like it's probably going to be pretty mechanical and it's going to be a lot of work to do and it's going to make me really tired and I'd rather just sit there and watch my breath and it does feel like a big project. Uh, and I would encourage you, one of the reasons why I'm talking about it is I would encourage you, I don't know if you like the word project or not, but I would encourage you to take it on as a project and if you get tired, really simplify and just watch your breath. And I think over time, you're gonna notice that you're, you're starting to do this more often that you can be having a conversation with somebody, listening to them, giving some consideration to what you'll, how you'll respond, and watching the thoughts that are going through your mind, or feeling the emotions, oh, that, what happened, that, that triggers me, contraction, or oh, what they said, uh, open something and I feel closer to them. So you're watching that, listening, talking at the same time. So we start to do this a a bit more organically over time, but um, though I think it still requires some some intention. It's still a a practice.
I want to offer a couple um, examples, ways that we can think about this um, very concretely in uh, practice and in in daily life. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, draw from the mundane in in a sense and uh, try to help illustrate that uh, freedom uh, comes as we interface through the mundane what we what we would define as the mundane experiences of our daily night life the freedom comes through the relationship the insight comes through the relationship with the thing not the thing right in the in the in the Buddhist tradition there's, as many of you know, there's these different maps of awakening, and uh, in one such map, at an early stage where there's some uh, really formative insight, one of the things that uh, gets resolved, uh, one of the things that goes away, is our attachment to rites and rituals. Um, in other words, we know, in a sense, that nothing special is required uh, to wake up. No fancy robes, you know. You don't have to have the right bell, you know. Uh, the, the perfect meditation cushion is not going to do it. Um, it actually doesn't matter. Um, so. Something that I've been experimenting with in my own life uh, see how can I explain this I'm trying to decide if this is more about body this is this is is kind of about body and mind it's definitely about body and mind um, <coughs> Maybe this is too mundane or too g- generic. My, my hope is that it's uh, generic in a way that you can a- apply the principles to other things of your life. It's not about the thing itself, right? But uh, my afternoons are spent um, in my office, either with people in person or on Skype or Zoom. I never would imagine growing up that I would spend my whole day talking to people on a computer, but I do. And uh, and I'm also alone. Like I'm either in my, in, I mean, I'm alone. Like I'm with that person, but you know, like I'm not going to an office. I'm not going to a school anymore. I'm I'm in a home office or an office here in Cambridge, and um, there's usually no other people around except for that one-on-one relationship. And so I'm kind of isolated, we could say. I'm a little bit isolated in that regard. I don't uh, have a lot of peers or colleagues in the conventional, conventional sense, not a lot in numbers. And I usually work from 12 noon to 5 or 6, and it's, it's, it's steady right through. There's often no breaks uh, and you know if there's a break it's either 10 or 15 minutes 
and that's totally go to the bathroom and you know have a cup of tea or eat something. So it's very very steady work, uh, and. Uh, what happens at the end, t- typically w- what happens at the end is I finish and I'm, I'm tired, I'm a little bit burnt out, my thinking is a little clunky, uh, my physical body is uh, tired or exhausted, uh, and there's, a, there's usually a pressure behind my eyes. There's a lot of indication uh, that I need to sort of shift gears and, and do something else to take care of myself. And... Uh, what I often do is shut Skype off and turn email on. <laughs> um, and, and, and what happens very quickly is a moderate level, like I'm starting to crash. Um, and if I stay on email too long, and I do because I get sucked in, because there's, once I open my email, there's a lot of things I need to do. Like email creates long to-do lists for me. Um, or there's emails of a sensitive nature that require a lot of thoughtfulness and, and, and I'll leave it at that. Um, so fairly shortly after opening email, I'll have a total crash, right? And I've completely depleted my resources. So that's a habit. Right. Um, part of the habit is as simple as not having good self-care routines. Part of the habit is not really listening to my body. Uh, part of the habit is thinking that I'll be better off if I just get a little bit more work done. Right. Um, so I have these intentions, and they're not new. I've had them for quite a while. One is to always go for a walk after my last student, no matter what. Always. Or, some of you know, a couple years ago, I got a membership at the Y, and I started exercising. So that's the other option, is to get in the car, drive to drive. Uh, Get in the car, drive to the gym, and exercise. So... When I do either of those, uh, the body goes from being depleted to being restored. Um, the The holding of people's narratives and their stories and the the unmet needs and the the unresolved suffering that I'm feeling very close to, in a sense, the body and mind are holding it physically and emotionally. Um, I start to feel some space from that. Right? That's, not a, that's not a distancing self, myself from my clients or students. It's just a creating a space from the felt sense of all those conversations. Actually, often what happens, particularly on walks, is that ideas come um, that would be and often are helpful to those students or clients. Uh, sometimes even more so than I, that would come to me in a session. Right? I get restored the mind freshens up, and I can come back from the walk or um, the gym, and um, I can do a lot of email. No, I, I can't. I can't. I can go back at that point. I can do some email, or I can just do something else that I that I want to do. Right. So there's a sense of like um, knowing how to take care of myself, knowing what's going to uh, 
cause the least amount of affliction in my own body and mind. And in this case, there's a direct correlation to other people in my life. Uh, when I really take care of myself, which requires um, putting uh, very, some people might say rigid boundaries on when I'm available, um, uh, if I put really, you know, and I break them sometimes, of course, yeah, I have to, but fairly uh, deliberate boundaries uh, and, and, and do these self-care routines, um, I'm happier. The body and mind are in, are in the place that I want to be in, you know, like I want to be in relationship with my own mind and body. Um, uh, I'm, I'm probably a, a better partner, and I think I'm a, a better colleague to the people I work with, and I'm, a, I'm probably a better teacher and a student, a better teacher to my students. And when I, when I avoid or am sucked into the delusion that I need to keep working, keep doing, keep working, keep doing, keep, or keep doing, um, I'm less helpful and skillful in all of those relationships, and I suffer more. Um, I see, and I, I, I won't say too much about this, but I see a little bit in myself. It's, it's something that I'm, I'm so adamant about, um, but certainly I see it a lot in the people around me. Um, the inability to, to disentangle from uh, devices and social media. Um, and we, most of us talk about it. And a lot of people say, oh, I really like to be on those things less. Uh, but there does seem to be some kind of an addictive relationship that many of us have with them. Uh, technology moves so fast, you know, uh, and we've created this expectation that we will be available to each other promptly. And uh, in certain contexts, we need to, or you know, as soon as possible. But I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And though technology can itself function quickly, and information moves fast, I'm not so sure that our nervous systems are wired such that um, we can keep up with the expectation that the pace of technology uh, suggests we shouldn't, right? Like, we can't keep up, ultimately. And many of us feel that in, in our nervous system. So this would be another way of um, working in a very uh, ordinary, uh, mundane um, way in our day-to-day -day life. The simplicity that I talked about during our meditation is something that in my life is compromised uh, very easily uh, through being too connected. Like that's how I compromise simplicity in my own life. So I could give many, many examples of, of uh, how to work with this in, in daily life. One example uh, from meditation practice, so daily life meditation practice, um, real basic, you're meditating, you're watching the breath, and somebody, it didn't happen tonight, but somebody opens the door, they come in a little bit late, and you want to see who it is, right? 
so you look up and you check it out, and from a certain perspective, who cares? No problem. Uh, and those of us who have been meditating for quite a while, we know that the, that the concentration that we've been trying to cultivate has been broken, partially. Um, so from the perspective of the development of concentration, that would have been an unskillful action with the body. Right? So it can be that explicit or that specific in terms of practice, right? If you're practicing and you're noticing that you're, you're thinking about all of the things that some person did to you that were unkind or harmful or, you know, um, you can pause and you can just, you know, well, what are all the things that they do good? What are they, what are the ways that they're smart? You know, what are, what are the ways that they're, um, they show up for the relationship, right? And you can just switch it, right? You can just, you can, you can change, you can change the channel. So what would it, what would it be like to really take, um, a, a, a teaching like this and, uh, see it as not something abstract or part-time, but really uh, begin to develop uh, this sort of discerning reflection moment to moment. Um, And and, and what I'd like to suggest is that you might find a a radical kind of intimacy. Um, You might find that it's impossible to fall off the path. People say, I fell off the path. What they mean is I'm not meditating very much. Um, You might find that learning about yourself um, never ends. And so there's a richness uh, that comes through your whole life. And in, 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 in that, that has a way of, of countering the part of us that wants to, to get to the event that will be rich or to find the relationship that will be intimate, right? There's a sense of uh, cultivating that, taking responsibility for cultivating that, right? And then, of course, lastly, uh, you, you might find that you're, you're truly developing insight into the causes and conditions for suffering and well-being in your own life. And it's, it's easier to do this if you're also getting on the cushion and, and meditating and sitting retreat. Um, but I, but I, one of the reasons I talk about this is I, is, I, is I think a lot of people just see like, we're done, we did it. It's Thursday night, we came, we sat on the cushion. We're good until next Thursday. <laughs> but it doesn't really work that way, actually. You know, or we're good until you wake up tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m. on the dot, like I know you all do, <laughs> and you meditate for 30 minutes. Okay, I'll stop there.